Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, who's currently a writer in residence at the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at Hong Kong University. This month, we're coming to you from their studio. As always, we're on air thanks to support from the ANU Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. In the year 2000, U.S. President Bill Clinton famously called Chinese censorship like nailing Jello to the wall. Liberty, he said, will spread by cell phone and cable modem. But in the two decades since, we've seen Beijing expanding its censorship capacities to new platforms like WeChat and Weibo. These are the Chinese equivalents of WhatsApp and Twitter, and they're where most Chinese now get their news. We're also seeing censorship beyond China's borders. Today we're going to get down in the weeds with some of the keenest researchers on Chinese censorship. We're joined by three experts following the footprints of the party's online policemen: Masashi Nishihata, the associate director of Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto; Fu Kinwa from the University of Hong Kong; and Blake Miller, a postdoc at Dartmouth College.、Uh, welcome to the program. Hello, great to be here. <laughs> so, Masashi, let's start with you. I mean. Over the years, we've seen Chinese censorship jumping platforms from Weibo to WeChat, from open platforms to group chats to one-to-one platforms, and now it seems to be kind of creeping overseas as well. I mean, how is it that people who use WeChat overseas are also being censored? Oh、uh, yeah, that's so. That's an interesting question.、Uh, my group has been working on trying to understand how censorship operates on WeChat for a number of years. We've been primarily looking at how keywords, so how、um, text messages, are censored, and also recently have been looking at image censorship.、Um, something that we found is that censorship is only enabled for users that are registered to a mainland China phone number.、Um, if they're later re-register their account to an international、um, phone number,、uh, they remain censored. Uh, but the interesting thing that we found, looking at the history of how WeChat has been implementing these features and essentially having two systems, one for users in mainland China and one for international users, is there's occasionally mistakes and bugs. So、um, you may remember in 2013 there were some news stories where journalists were showing that on their international WeChat accounts, so not mainland China accounts,、uh, they were receiving censorship. So when they put in certain messages、uh, to their contact. It wouldn't go through, and they would receive a warning saying,、uh, "You know, this message contains prohibited keywords and cannot be sent." So that was one of the first times that really this difference between the two systems was exposed to a more general audience outside of China, and shows some of the challenges that WeChat has in, in、um, maintaining these two systems. And they came out and said, "You know, this is a bug, and、um, these features weren't supposed to be on for international users."、Hmm. I mean, Kingwa, censorship seems to be tightening、uh, in terms of what's being censored. I mean, you found that something going viral、um, is enough to get content banned, regardless of whether the content is overtly political. I mean, why do you think、uh, that is? So we found、um, over the years that the censorship decisions were made not entirely on the content itself. It's also re- related to how it's distributed.、Uh, the decisions were made. Uh, because just simply because they get, get going viral, a lot of people believe that should be something related to anti-government things. But we found 
in some occasion, for example, last year when the U.S. Uh, Vice President uh, Mike Pang made a speech, a uh, pretty strong uh, criticism on China last year, and we found uh, basically both sides of the comments on uh, his speech, uh, both supporting him and also uh, some uh, criticize him, were, were censored at the very beginning. One of the main purpose of doing all the uh, censorship decision, the China wanted to cool down everything. They wanted to mm. stop the discussion on the issue over a short period of time. Mm. But could you give us an example of, say, a viral video that seemed to be completely harmless but that was nevertheless blocked? On, okay, uh, so uh, it's pretty popular in China. There's uh, some, like the Western uh, YouTuber, but they, uh, they share they, on the video sharing website uh, the very popular um, uh, talent to speak about the issues, about love, about women issue, about the love relation thing. Recently, there's a pretty popular um, WeChat account who, who is speaking on the love issue, romantic relationship issue, what were blocked. Back to the, my original argument, something is not really an, uh, about the topics. It's a bit about China want to stop everything, have the potential of going viral. So, Blake, you've been sifting through vast amounts of content and you've really figured out a mechanism to look at the kind of stories that are being blocked. The collective wisdom at one point had been that it was posts that seemed to incite collective action that were more likely to be censored. But it seems that your research finds that it's more complicated. Is that right? What I found in my own research is that it's not necessarily important what content is censored, but more who is writing that content, who is the author behind that content. Uh, In work with Mary Gallagher, we found that in a leaked database of uh, directives that were sent to social media companies by the government, the users who were reported back to the government for ostensibly any kind of what they call drinking tea or being interrogated or being intimidated. Those users were users who had lots of followers or whose content went viral. It wasn't necessarily about what they were talking about. And uh, this is similar to what Kingwa was just saying, that it's more about the social space that an individual takes up. It's not necessarily about some content-based heuristic that is driving censorship. Uh, it's really it's really more about the user and the clout of that user and trying to get rid of the opinion ground that is held by non-Communist Party-affiliated uh, individuals and groups. So in terms of the actual content that is targeted most by these directives in the data that I have, it's mostly about leadership and uh, it's mostly about uh, criticism of the government and government-related humor or uh, crime, for example. It's, it's, uh, collective action is censored at a high rate, but uh, these discussions of government criticism or leadership are censored much, much more. Censorship fundamentally is a repressive act, and repression is targeted at people. It's not targeted at content. That's, that's generally the way that I see, see it in my research. 
Masashi, one of the one of the more interesting findings um, that Citizen Lab, uh, yourself and other researchers have found, is that even neutral or, or slightly positive references to official uh, party policies and ideologies uh, are being blocked on WeChat, in, in addition to any reference to Congress or party leaders. Could you give us some examples of the kinds of things that are being censored uh, and your thoughts on why Chinese people suddenly aren't allowed to talk about the party or their nation's leaders? Uh, sure. So this is based on uh, research with colleagues that we did around uh, testing keyword censorship around the period of the 19th uh, Party Congress. And uh, we found that the Party Congress as many other sensitive events act as catalysts for censorship on WeChat and other social media platforms. Um, so it wasn't surprising that we saw the um, number of keywords that we're testing related to the Congress increase as um, the event approached. And during the Congress, we saw the most keywords blocked. What was surprising, as you alluded to, was um, some of the content of the keywords. So you know, a lot of it was about uh, government criticism, rumors or speculations around personnel transition. And it makes sense why these kinds of things would be sensitive uh, around um, this critical moment. Uh, but then we also saw some things like core ideological concepts of the party being blocked, like socialism with Chinese characteristics or just general references to policy issues like the Belt and Road Initiative and so on. Um, and the way that we were deriving these keywords is we were um, scraping news articles that were related to the Congress, and um, some of the news articles were also from uh, official um, state media, and some of those keywords were being blocked. So even Xinhua is being censored. Yeah, like the, the, the article itself um, wasn't necessarily being blocked. So our method is that we would take uh, the entire corpus of text of a news article and then send it in our system where we basically uh, have a group chat going on with test accounts. And then if um, any text in that article is blocked, then we reduce it down to the smallest number of characters, and then we know that those are the characters and um, keywords that are true. Oh my god, um, that's really labor-intensive. Well, the computer's doing most of the hard work. But um, <laughs> anyway, so what what we interpreted from this is this, you know, really uh, blunt reaction um, to the Congress. Tencent would come under um, kind of similar scrutiny and, and pressure from government authorities. How exactly that looks in practice isn't clear from us, but I think it shows that, you know, Tencent was taking potentially, a, you know, better safe than sorry approach and trying to cover itself through this. It could be that they were getting very directed guidance um, from government authorities. It could be some combination of the two. And, you know, that's sort of the challenge of doing this research is we're looking at these technical artifacts, like what's being blocked. So, you know, we send a message into this black box, something happens and the message doesn't come out. We know it's censored um, and we can prove that, but we don't know necessarily what the intentionality motivation behind it was and what the role of um, the government is and what the role of the company is in making those decisions. But, you know, it's not always a complete story. I was just going to ask a quick question to Kimwa because I understand you've been doing um, research on censorship surrounding June the 4th and the anniversary of Tiananmen. And certainly um, for many years on Weibo, as the anniversary approached, this was more and more heavily censored. So on Weibo, you were seeing censorship of words like that year, <laughs> nostalgia, when spring turns to summer. Today, tomorrow. I mean, are we seeing that level of censorship on WeChat? And how can you even use a platform when you have censorship like that? We have been collecting the censored Weibo post since 2012. 
the censorship decision made that during the June 4th uh, period, they are pretty over cautious towards anything that mm. posed during that period of time, especially you just mentioned about classic example. We found quite a number of uh, examples. The people just uh, screen cap a uh, web page when the people type today uh, into the search engine and then it pop up in uh, the error uh, the message say because of the law of the regulation, you can't search for today. Something that's <laughs> uh, something bad. They're pretty interesting kinds of symbolic representation of, of the, the sentiment during the period of time. Kimwa, a lot of your research is around looking at what happens after an incident or around a certain date. And one thing we know about censorship is that it can often, uh, rather than scare people off, it can often make people wonder, well, why is this being censored? And if you censor something as broad as today uh, and someone's not thinking about Tiananmen at all, then surely it makes them wonder, well, why is this being censored? I mean, can it actually have the opposite effect to what the censors are looking for? That's a good question. That's a story pretty interesting. The person who a story uh, on, on Weibo they talk basically it's a dialogue between a girlfriend and boyfriend and the girl com- keep complaining about the boyfriend hey why are you so busy today I have a date with you I have a dinner with you uh, so busy today it's like a couple of dialogue at the end it just he end up hey because today is some special day I need to work overtime until midnight basically the boy, the, the boy uh, was the censor at, at working in, in the provider so this kind of story. This basically is a protest, I, I think. I probably agree with you. It basically increased the level of anger. Some of the people really not want to look into the June 4th issue, but because of that strict level of censorship, that triggered more people to go into this area and also have some interest over it. And let's come back to this whole issue of companies employing censors themselves and the sort of second guessing of what the state wants. And Blake, I think you've done some research on that. Uh, To what extent is the sort of act of outsourcing changing the dynamics of censorship? So I think one of the major things that makes the censorship system work in China is the fact that it's outsourced to private companies. The private companies that are delegated to oftentimes will disobey government directives, and they do so in order to get an edge over their competitors in certain cases. So in uh, 2013, there was a scandal in the Southern Weekend newspaper where they had this editorial and there was this very bungled like rewriting of the entire editorial by the uh, Guangdong Propaganda Department, which led to a strike. And there was a lot of different directives coming from even the highest levels of government. And Sina Weibo deliberately decided that they weren't going to obey these directives and that they were going to continue hosting um, content on Sina Weibo because they were observing that Tencent Weibo was not complying with government directives. And they realized that if they censored more than Tencent, um, then they were perhaps going to cause their users to want to migrate to Tencent's platform, uh, which would be obviously bad for business. So there's a lot of, uh, of interesting things that go on in this, this outsourcing process to private companies. But I think that there's also this hidden benefit where oftentimes these private companies will see, okay, my competitor is not censoring something that I have been asked to censor. So I am going to tell the government 
that they are not complying. So by having these competitive pressures, you have a cheap way of uh, enforcing the uh, the censorship directives. So hey, I can see you nodding nodding there. Mm-hmm. Have you found something quite similar? Or? Uh, yeah, so we don't have the same visibility that Blake has since he has a you know really unique data set of seeing the actual logs of a censorship department and making those decisions. But we have seen some interesting things in censored content that show decisions that are you know very likely made by the companies rather than the states. So for example, uh, we did some research on live streaming platforms and were investigating how they censor keywords and found that there are censoring competitors' um, names um, within <laughs> chats. Um, so possibly a similar motivation to try to prevent users from going to another platform. Um, we've also seen the same thing on online games um, where competitors' names would be blocked. So. Here, it's sort of the slippery slope of censorship. Once you have the system in place, then there's all kinds of other motives that can happen and other pieces of content that might be attractive to block um, purely for business reasons rather than from any pressure from the government. Mm. So I want to ask just a really broad question, but is there any way of measuring what percentage of posts get censored? Yes, so it really depends on the platform. Um, Some platforms, in the ways that they censor, you can get a more comprehensive view of what's being blocked on them, and some of them make it a bit harder. So for WeChat and Weibo, what we've been speaking about primarily today, um, they censor on the server, which means that when you send a message to the service, Uh, It goes through a server maintained by um, the company that's providing the platform, and all of the rules for censorship are in that server. So I send a message to my friend on WeChat, it goes through a Tencent server, it checks if my message has any uh, keywords that match a blacklist, and if it does, my friend doesn't receive the message, and um, now they don't even receive a, a warning. Uh, on either side that the um, the message uh, contained prohibited keywords. Um, the challenge there for researchers is that we can't see inside the black box of the server. We can only send a sample of what we think might be blocked and look at the result on the other side. Uh, other systems do the blocking on the application itself. So all of the rules and keywords um, that they'd be looking to block are within the code of the app. And if that is the case, then you can reverse engineer the application or essentially, you know, take it apart and try to understand how it works and then retrieve um, keyword lists. And when you do that, it's possible to have a comprehensive view of what's being blocked on a platform, at least for a period of time. Talking about the black box, um, I I wondered if all of you um, could chip in very briefly um, on how censorship Works so. I mean, we know there's keyword filtering, there's image filtering, um, there's even censorship in one-to-one conversations on platforms that have a billion users, most of whom are on their phone for more than an hour every day. I mean, I mean, how does censorship on this scale actually work? I would say the pre-multi-layers uh, efforts. So at the very uh, uh, initial stage, that is exactly the keyword censorship. Uh, we interview some people, they talk about even they editing their, their post. Because in the system, they can uh, prepare the post and editing. Even sometimes, they even not yet completed. If even they try to edit that post, it, it already can't save it. Wow. wow. And, and that, no, that means that the system is not really uh, censored, not just for uh, publication. It's also 
during the editing pro process. Once it got published, that means they passed the uh, keyword filtering test. But at some point of time, that some layers of uh, of the authority find out this is something inappropriate, and then they find a different way to censor. So when I talk about multi-layer, this really literally multi-layers. That means that could be come from different government department. It could be come uh, some of the central government. And we find also sometimes it's come from uh, provincial or even lower level of the government. Some of them, they have a power. It's also linked something with, uh, with the provider, the, the based area. For example, Tencent in Guangzhou uh, and uh, Xinang in Beijing, Tianjin. These are the, they're also closely related to the, where they're based. Sometimes it's not from the government, it also comes the police force. And also sometimes it's some of the commercial sector because they are closely related with the government and also making use of the different power to try to influence the, the censorship decisions. And, and also it's not a straightforward process. Sometimes you have some kind of struggle, some people want to censor, but that, that some people don't, don't want to do it. They don't really understand the guideline because that, that all might be some communication problem and also because of some of the stuff, they really not well understand everything. For example, June 4th, some people, we, we don't understand what we mean your June 4th. That, how can they make decision in the front line? Right, that picture that many of us, maybe I'm only speaking for me, but I think that picture that I have in my mind of, you know, a room full of censors with a list of guidelines sitting there, you know, looking through this list is then completely outdated, right? That's not the way that it works at all. I, I think a lot of the way that, that the censorship system actually works is through this kind of mass mobilization type of policy making um, that we see so often in, um, in Chinese politics, where there's a lot of improvisation, there's a lot of decentralization, and there's one key objective, and that is to guide public opinion in the right direction and prevent what, um, what is called a public opinion emergency. And I think one of the things that drives a lot of the censorship decisions of these private social media companies and media companies in general are uh, local governments who are using software that is actually sifting through social content and trying to identify what they call public opinion emergencies before they happen. So local governments are asked to develop either an early warning system through someone who is looking at local websites or through a software system that there are many, many different software platforms that these local governments can use to send automated alerts if, say, there's a, uh, a lot of dairy industry in a local government's uh, jurisdiction and there have been milk scandals or safety scandals in that area. You might have certain keywords that would alert a local government to people talking about some tainted milk that would prompt a response, say, um, that would escalate up to higher levels of government who would then send a directive to Sina or Tencent to take action um, as, as quickly as possible. And they even have guidelines for uh, the amount of time that these local governments have to report up to higher levels of government and to respond to these public opinion emergencies. And they actually have contingency plans to deal with certain types of public opinion emergencies. So it's a very um, decentralized system, but there is a procedure that a lot of, uh, of these local governments are using that is resulting in a lot of these directives that are then sent to 
uh, private companies. I mean, that's so, like using social networks for preemptive policing. And a lot of this is based off of sifting through large amounts of data from social networks to try and see if, okay, maybe people are talking about uh, one thing a lot. There's a lot of reposts of uh, similar looking content. So they have oftentimes dedicated personnel in these local governments that are responsible for not only looking after these newly viral posts that are being discovered by software, but these are also the same people who are then astroturfing and spreading pro-government messages in social media and online forums. So this is a, a very common practice and they call these opinion workers and they, they're, they're all different levels of government and any kind of bureaucracy you could imagine. One thing that, that struck me when I was working in a local government was that news relating to the local area uh, that was negative didn't seem to be censored to any near the extent that news about the central government was. I mean, are local governments censored less proactively than the central government is? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and this is going back to, to what uh, Kingwa was saying about the decentralization of, of censorship, where uh, Sina is, is based in Beijing and Tencent is, um, is in Guangdong. So uh, the municipal government of Beijing, for example, is uh, uh, directly delegating to uh, Sina and other local governments do not have the power to directly delegate censorship to Sina. So you'll see things like posts that are related to Beijing or that paint the Beijing municipal government in a bad light are censored at much, much, much higher rates. I think also you, you have, in recent years, you have this uh, re-centralization of things through the Cyberspace Administration of China. I think nowadays there, there probably is a, a slight bias towards the central government. And Masashi, do you have anything to add about the way in which censorship is changing? The picture that we've been trying to understand is a messy and chaotic one. And the idea that, as has been described, there's multiple lines of authority from multiple um, levels of government. There isn't like one monolithic authority that is dictating what should be censored or not. And then that's also being um, filtered through the companies themselves and they might make different decisions. So it's, it's, it's a much more complicated and uh, at times even confusing system to understand than is often portrayed in uh, media where it's, you know, the Chinese government doesn't like X, uh, so they decided to block it. Or, you know, some of the stories that are kind of cute, like, um, you know, Winnie the Pooh bears a likeness to Xi Jinping, so they've blocked that. And, you know, I can understand why that narrative is attractive and why it goes out like that. But in uh, reality, it's... Uh, much more messy, chaotic, complicated, and hard to research. Blake, I wanted to ask you about your research on astroturfing or these sort of kind of fake comments praising the government. I mean, that seems to be another innovation that the government is moving, not just censoring content, but we're seeing more and more kind of fake content. And I was really interested in this paper where you estimate that 15% of all comments on the data set of news articles that you looked at were made by government astroturfers. I mean, can you just tell us a bit more about that finding and what kind of comments you were seeing? The paper is, is actually looking at um, not necessarily the text of the content in these comment sections, but it's looking at the metadata and trying to identify astroturfers 
based on things like IP address and the number of comments per each username to try and match the behaviors that we would expect from AstroTurfers. And then it's also looking at things like uh, social networks of the commentators on these websites. So um, I also have information about the uh, commenter's Weibo account. So I then look to see if they're following a government account or not. Um, and a government following a government account is an indicator of whether or not an astroturfer is government affiliated or not, because a lot of times uh, these gov local governments are evaluated on their online outreach uh, by metrics such as the number of, of followers that their government account has or the number of, um, of comments that are on their uh, government official government page. So they'll require that the employees of that government agency all follow the uh, official account and they'll actually uh, have a spreadsheet where they will actually tally up and see, okay, we have all of these work units, we have all of these cadres, have they followed the account or not? And they'll have a, a column where it's, did they follow yes or no? So, uh, so that's an easy way of kind of seeing if these people actually are working for uh, the government or not. And then using that, you can also kind of guess what their affiliation is, what, what bureaucracy they are astroturfing for. And one thing that, that I found was really interesting, one case study that, that I looked into was the uh, Tianjin explosion. Uh, so at the port of Tianjin, there was a, a container um, with a, a flammable chemical that exploded and caused the death of over 100 people. Uh, and this was a huge scandal because the government had been paid off by this, this chemical company to store their chemicals within one kilometer of a residential area, which was against the law. And, and in order to divert attention away from the discussion of the uh, malfeasance of these government officials or uh, public safety concerns, almost all of the astroturfers I detected in this instance were talking about how brave the first responders were and how great it is that we have the People's Liberation Army coming in and helping to put out these fires and rescue people. And it was all just like singing the praises of these first responders, which was already kind of a thread of discussion in a lot of these comment sections, but they were just trying to amplify it to drown out all of the, the criticisms that were there. This is a slightly nerdy question and Louisa will probably cut it, but um, <laughs> I mean, just, just talking about local government getting involved in astroturfing, I mean, I mean, how broad is it within a local government? I mean, have you got people astroturfing for the agriculture ministry? Yeah, um, so there's actually a, um, a leaked propaganda department email archive where there's actually um, an agricultural ministry in this local government that is astroturfing in support of um, an orange, so a type of orange that it is, is grown locally. And there were, were allegations that this local agricultural area was using a chemical to artificially ripen these fruit that they had to pick early because there was some early frost. They were artificially ripening these fruits. There were all these allegations um, about this local government um, using this, this chemical, which was uh, ostensibly harmful to people's health. And they were going out on these websites that were discussing this 
scandal and they were saying that there's nothing wrong with these oranges. These oranges are great. So it's really broad in terms of the scope of what is is being uh, discussed and what kind of uh, local governments are getting involved in astroturfing. Wow. I mean, that's that's so interesting. I mean, yeah, because anecdotally, that, that fits totally with what I was seeing inside local government. But uh, but it's just wonderful to know it was happening in another place other than just my county. I mean, we're increasingly hearing talk of internet sovereignty, of this bifurcation of the internet, that you have an internet for China, which is more like an intranet, and then one for the rest of the world. I mean, do you see that as the way the internet's developing, or, or is it more complicated than that? Um we find some evidence that uh, around the world that they're trying different ways to make use of different mode and medium uh, to try to extend the inference to the other government. I'm trying to look at uh, uh, how they make use of the WeChat public account. We are tracking a number of uh, WeChat accounts. We, we, we find the pattern of the posting uh, information is not that same as the normal type of account. For example, they post substantially larger number of posts per day. Pretty similar to some of the state media have the privilege to post a lot of uh, posts. So, I mean, you're talking about what looks like international astroturfing. <laughs> it, I, I don't have the strong evidence yet, but we, we find some of the observation that this is just a pattern. For example, uh, we are trying to look at uh, the accounts some of the accounts are basically targeting Australian uh, Chinese community. So we want to see, during the con- in the context of election, for example, whether or not they would post something that might come a little bit different from the traditional framing of the issue related to the election thing. But in general, about the, they frame some of the local issue in Australia about the crime, about the uh, issue related to the racism. Australia is a uh, multiracial uh, country. They have some party, they are racist. So they are overemphasis of some of the racist orientated party uh, in the post. They try to trigger some of the uh, self protection sentiment uh, in, in the post. We find it more interesting to look at how it framed the issue during some of the context, for example, election. Yeah, I mean, the question of whether uh, through information controls we're seeing more collections of uh, government-regulated intranets rather than a global intranet is something we definitely think a lot about in our work. And I think is a question of whether or not that's happening is no longer debatable. Like, internet censorship as a practice has become normalized around the world. We've done measurements in over 77 different countries and found 42 of them thereabouts had some level of internet censorship, including both in countries that are democracies and also authoritarian regimes. What makes China interesting is that they have this, you know, vibrant domestic internet economy and can provide platforms as alternatives to international services that just isn't as viable in in other countries yet, at least. What I've been finding particularly interesting, though, and this is especially the case with WeChat and Tencent, is what kind of efforts will Chinese companies like Tencent make to internationalize and how successful can they be? And, you know, it's debatable of how well um, Tencent has done with this, although they've definitely invested 
you know, a lot of money in advertising and gotten big celebrities um, to promote their products overseas. Um, but just as, you know, the story I told earlier of in 2013 when users with international accounts were experiencing censorship, uh, they've also had the inverse happen when they've tried to create features or little fun things that would happen for users internationally creep over into China by accident through a bug. So one story I particularly like in 2015 uh, for Martin Luther King Day to commemorate it, if you were uh, an international WeChat user and you wrote um, civil rights into your chat with your friend, these little American flags would rain down on your chat, which is mm-hmm. which is cute and nice. But then it also worked for users in China, and um, you know some party <laughs> officials and others didn't think that was so cute. Uh, and um, Tencent was reprimanded and um, came out with this uh, statement. And this is paraphrasing, but essentially they said, WeChat's path to internationalization is not easy. You know, we'll try harder and, and do our best. Great. And one final, final question, if you could all answer really briefly, if you feel like it. I mean, if we circle back to that prediction that Bill Clinton made in 2000, that liberty will spread by cell phone and cable modem. I mean, two decades later, looking at China's sort of innovations in control and censorship, to what extent is that true? Or do you think that, in fact, we're seeing the opposite? And, you know, it's not liberty that's being spread by cell phone and cable modem, but in fact, repression is increasingly being exported by by cell phone and cable modem. There has been these ideas of kind of techno-utopianism or liberation technologies, and that, you know, the internet would challenge power structures in ways that governments couldn't control. I think now that that idea has come to be seen as um, incomplete, and uh, as as you well mentioned, you know the same technologies that can be a source of liberation can also be a source of repression. Um, that doesn't mean though that it slides all the way to the other end of the scale, and I think um, China's one particularly interesting place to see that because you see these pockets of resistance um, in a number of different places, and some that you might not expect, like from. For example, at times the companies themselves, although they're motivated by um, profit. But then you also see that from the users and, you know, interesting and clever ways of using Chinese language or using technology to subvert censorship. And so there's always like this level of contestation and, you know, you can't completely control technology and you can't completely subvert it. And anytime you're creating any one of those actions, there's also going to be unintended consequences. So this is really, you know, more of a a living ecosystem and not something that can be um, completely regulated or completely subverted. The China government, their regulation system is making good use of the internet as a way to suppressing uh, the the citizen activity. But uh, you, you can't de- deny that the citizens, they're still using uh, internet as a way to organize uh, grassroots movement. For example, in March, a group of uh, parents in Chengdu, they have definitely nothing to do with pretty uh, controversial political issues just because they care about their catering services, catering quality in, uh, of the kid. And this group of parents are middle class. They pay a lot of tuition to that school for for the Jews, but they find out the substandard food quality that provided by the school. They protest and make use of the social media network and gather close to three thousand people and protest. Of course, as at the end, they get suppressed and the government need to apologize. And some of the people they just to they find a way to, to respond, but 
you can't deny that if without the Dexcom media in China, that would should not be have happened. On that question of the internet as either a source of of liberation or、um, a source of oppression,、um, I tend to be a little bit more pessimistic. I see a lot of the major tech companies in、uh, China and in the world as being driven by、um, this new、um, type of consumption. This, this、uh, surveillance capitalism is what、um, Shoshana Zuboff calls it,、um, where、uh, a lot of the value of companies like Google and Facebook. Uh, is derived from just、uh, taking in massive amounts of data on、um, individual users that can inform these companies about their behavior and their wants and needs, and serve them advertisements. And this kind of surveillance, which is used for、uh, commercial purposes, can also be used by governments for for repression. And in China, there are More and more collaborations between these tech companies and the government in order to、uh, enforce social control. So there's a social credit system that's being developed in China,、um, and even in in places like the United States, you see that、uh, governments are eager to get access to a lot of the data that these. Uh, tech companies are collecting, so I think that it's really dangerous and something that we really need to be concerned about as a society. That、um, more and more of our social life is is being encoded into data streams that are being sold without our consent, and that these data are being used to try and change our behavior for. Either commercial or nefarious political purposes. So I I think that、um, this is really a huge huge tool for authoritarians, both、um, in democracies and authoritarian regimes alike,、um, and something that we really need to、uh, think a lot about. You've been listening to Little Red Podcasts, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and please rate us on iTunes. We're on air thanks to support from the ANU's Australian Centre on China and the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Background research was by Julia Bergen. Our theme tune is from Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifs are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.